Hello, and welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast designed to address the concerns of black men and provide a forum for them to learn, feel empowered, and be the men they are called to be. Welcome back to the State of the Black Actor Part 2, where we pick up with our guests, Hervé Claremont, Chris Williams, and Christopher T. Wood, as they discuss the new Tyler Perry Studios, their beginnings in Hollywood, and their passions outside of Hollywood. And on that note, let's get to the show. And that's great because, you know, uh, you know, mentioning Tyler, you know, Tyler Perry and his groundbreaking, you know, movie production studio out in Atlanta, a huge 330 acre, 12 sound stages is kind of, you know, rock the industry, I'm sure. You know, what does that mean to you guys as actors? Uh, the fact that this is, um, this has happened. Well, Irving's been on the, he's been on the compound, so. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I'm on the show Ruthless. Yeah. Um, and so we went down there last, uh, it was last November. And we shot a whole season in three weeks. So mm. we're talking 24 episodes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it's unbelievably impressive. I mean, if you think about the fact that it's the largest studio in the United States, uh, you can combine three studios in uh, in California, like Warner Brothers, um, uh, you know, Gower Studios and, and uh, whatever other studio. I can't come to mind right now, but mm. add, you know, put three of them together and it's not as big. 330 acres, 12 yeah. sound stages. It's enormous. And, um, you know, one of the things where when COVID hit, it was, you know, the fact that he was, uh, he has the ability to house uh, cast and crew, uh, really to keep people in a bubble like they're doing with the NBA um, down in Disney. Um, he really is the only person that, as far as I can know right now, that really has that ability to control so many things. Of course, you can't control everything, but right. luckily uh, with his first uh, two shows that he shot, or at least his first one, uh, four people showed up, uh, tested positive, they never made it on to, um, never made it on to the, house, uh, the mm. ground. Uh, they were sent back. Uh, they weren't part of the cast, so they were lucky about that. Uh, and then no one else tested uh, they tested i believe four times during uh the time that they were filming no one tested positive they left no one has tested positive since uh he's moved on to the second one so he's you know he has rapid testing you know he spent uh i think i read something like 18 million dollars on getting everything yeah in place. so i mean he i had read uh he was thinking about how he was going to open up when he knew he was about to shut down so he was, you know, he was always thinking ahead. I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, it, it was very impressive of what he does, what he's accomplished. And um, so it was, it was definitely a, a great experience to go down there. With yeah. And I just heard about that recently or this morning on CBS Sunday morning about that. And I think that's awesome. So, you know, in you guys' opinion, why, why does you, why do you think he gets a bad rap in the black community? Anyone want to touch that one? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, you know, sometimes uh, I think, you know, some people like, you know, he, he he's unapologetic about who he uh, shoots for, or who he writes for. And that's not for everybody. 
And, uh, you know, I've seen interviews with him and, and uh, he's just like, you know, I have my niche, you know, I know I have my niche, I know who I want to write for and they love what I write. And that's what he continues to do uh, with our show. He's completely very, very different from what he's done in the past. So, uh, you know, he wanted to uh, tackle something new, something much darker, a uh, little even says, you know, it's a crazy show and, um, you know, it seems like I've been typecasted in the last two, three years as either FBI detective or so I'm <laughs> some kind of law enforcement. And I guess I got that look now, you know, so it's a, um, it's a good so. place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We just have to change the, uh, the concept of, uh, or just of the product that's going out there. Um, you know, I think they've glorified too much over the years, certain aspects of law enforcement and, I think they're going to be very more, uh, much more cognizant of that uh, in the future. Oh, so you feel there'll be some changes made? I think so. I mean, you know, um, you know, we've always seen that the rogue cop. Sometimes, you know, people uh, root for the rogue cop. You know, more uh, scripts or more characters, which there is some kind of inner conflict with what maybe what they're doing versus uh, or what they really believe inside, and versus what. Maybe their their force is doing, uh, you know. So I mean, I think there's uh, there's a lot of opportunity uh, to go in a definitely a more positive direction. Mm, okay. Any of you guys that want to touch that, or you you were gonna leave we're gonna leave that alone? The, the, the Tyler Perry thing. Well, he had a, a, one of the beginning parts of his career when he was building his empire. He wasn't paying his writers uh, union wages. He was he was overworked and not respecting them and they get fired a lot of times if uh, they didn't do what he wanted. Um, he was also shortchanging actors um, in terms of not paying them the scale or the amount of money that in normal circumstances under the unions, they'd be paid. So um, Tyler Perry is, is really about his product, just getting, getting his product out there and doing it the most economically uh, advantageous for him. And sometimes that means cutting, you know, cutting the edges off of things when it affects the under, uh, you know, underlying people. So that's what a lot of people have a problem, you know, a lot of times with, with his, his stuff. And this is the industry that I know. So, um, mm-hmm. but he does have his core audience and his audience isn't necessarily mind um, you know, his product, they, they, they like his product. So, you know, right. Right. And I, I mean, everyone has a critic, so it's just interesting. Um, yeah, to, please to, everybody all the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> this, well, I mean, the, the fact that you have a niche and he knows what, what he, and it served him well, I mean, and the fact that he's been able to, you know, through Build his, his empire. Yeah. yeah, through his empire I mean, and create he, that. He didn't mad at him at all. I mean, yeah. You can't hate him for for you know what he's what he's done. He's accomplished an incredible amount of stuff, but you know there are some criticisms about how he's how he's gone about stuff sometimes. That's right, all. right. And I'll just it'll be interesting to see if will there be a shift in as far as you know Hollywood. The fact that he has one of the biggest, you know the you know three times bigger than some of the studios. Will it shift people starting to you know use that compound more, especially if he has. Um, you know, this kind of bubble effect, like the NBA, that'll, that'll be interesting uh, to see. Um, I, mean, I think if he, 
he's a he's a genius. So he's a really smart man, and I think uh, the way he's shooting right now, if he if he's able to get, you know, because he's already had movies shot there. He's, uh, you know, if he gets his shows done um, in a, you know, pretty uh, short amount of time, then his studios are available to other studios. Right. Allow right. them, you know. So he, you know, he'll make money on his studios. I mean, I'm sure it was quite an investment there. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, that's true. Back to you, Chris. Just a quick question, um, because I, I, I mean, I remember when we first met. Uh, you know, we were freshmen on campus. You know, of course, Vanessa, your, who's your sister, uh, was just either had just Vince America or had just kind of ended in Miss America. But when you got on campus, you know, was there a certain? Did you have a certain feeling? You know, when people realized that you you were her brother. Uh, well, the reason why uh, uh, I'm, I'm even I even went to Georgetown was because I was I wanted to be a sports broadcaster, and I got into Newhouse School of Communications at Syracuse, which is the best. Bob Costas, the Gumbles went there. Yeah. And I was mm-hmm. all ready to become a sports broadcaster, and I got in, and I couldn't take four years of being her her brother again. I mean, I could not have mm-hmm. gone to school and dealt with not having my own identity. Because Vanessa was a Syracuse alum. Right, she went to Syracuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I literally went to the opposite, in the other opposite direction, I went to Georgetown. And uh, and I remember the first uh, first week of school, we were there on Harbin, in a little Harbin area. And uh, I had just uh, broken my thumb. Ed Murphy broke, broke my thumb playing basketball. And I had a cast <laughs> on. Mr. Hack himself? Right. So... Uh, so uh, I remember being in in at one of our first parties or whatever, and someone came up to me and said, "I heard your I heard your Vanessa Williams brother," and I was like, "Oh, I, don't, I was like, oh no, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about." Oh, uh, he's like, "Oh, good thing because she's this, that, she's," da, 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 da. and I was like, and of course, I, I was like, oh, "Oh, and what if I was type of thing?" And I was about to smack him with my <laughs> my, my thing and Joe Pecoraro. Who is yeah, Joe Field, linebacker? He's like, don't move. You stay right here. And, then, and I see him go to the guy and go and then it takes the guy. He goes, he's like, Joe. So that was that was uh, <laughs> shout out to Joe Pecoraro for, for my honor, so to speak. But uh, yeah, you know, it's always been uh, a tricky, tricky situation. Uh, um, you know, being Vanessa's Vanessa's brother because she was such a huge, especially and we went to school in '85 and she was Miss America of 1984. So I was coming right out of high school and right into Georgetown. So yeah, it was. Um, you know, it's interesting when it, people used to say, "Oh, why didn't you tell me?" I was like, "Well, oh, why, why would I? Do you tell me about your sister Denise?" <laughs> like, yeah. you're like, are you going to treat me differently because of that? And so I've learned to deal with it over the years. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, and but you, you followed kind of similar paths, you know, with acting. So um, when did you kind of realize that you had arrived, you know, and you had, you had basically forged your own path? Uh, when I, uh, that I don't recommend for up-and-coming actors at all, but uh, when I started at 25, because everybody for the first four years out of, out of Georgetown, Everybody's going to biz school, law school, Mr. Wood. Like every people were going <laughs> to you know, higher education things. And, and I didn't want to be a poor actor. I didn't want to be like, well, I don't want to give up everything and not have a job 
And then I did a play when I was 25. And they're like, well, are you going to get to this? You've got to get to it sooner than later because, you know. And so that, but I decided to look at it as my grad school, which is not necessarily, because I was going to go to Georgetown Law. I had deferred and I was going to go to Georgetown Law, but I was like, I don't need a lawyer. So what I did, mm-hmm. I don't recommend it as I said, is that I put <laughs> all of my, all of my money on credit cards. And for the f- first five years until I was 30, I had probably about $55,000 in credit card debt. So you did the Robert Townsend Right, but I was paying here and paying this off and keeping my, my bills paid as much as I could, you know, paying credit cards, paying credit cards, keep my credit credit good. And then uh, I got a, a sketch comedy show called Hype on the WB. I was doing stand-up. I was doing all, everything that I could. And then, boom, did 17 episodes and wiped my, all my debt out. Mm. So as long as I saw progress in my career... I would keep funding it, keep funding it and put money into it, put money into it. And so it was ridiculous. And I have videos of me when I'm 28 and I'm struggling going, you know, I got I have $25 in my name. I've got all these bills. And as long as I saw, you know, steps forward, I kept funding it. And then I got the, uh, the sketch comedy show and that wiped everything out. So I had at least something that I could start with, with a credit and a little money behind me, even though my took up all the debt that I had to pay off. So. So I would say that was the the moment that I was like, I can consider myself a self-sustaining actor when I could pay pay my bills, basically. Well, yeah, that's a that's a fascinating story because it just it really talks about you, your actual fortitude and your perseverance, and being that you knew that you wanted to do something. So no, despite the obstacles, you went on ahead and followed your path. So I think. As long as I saw yeah. forward progress, they said an overnight sensation takes eight years at least. Mm. Oh yeah. So you know, as long as you see progress, yeah. I'll just keep funding it. So and that's what I did, and it worked out for me, thank goodness. Right, right, great. And so, Christopher, you were the late bloomer of the group. So you, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, mentioned that you were you went to like law school, and then I you made, were. In, I made a lot of mistakes as a young guy, and you did some Wall Street. I know for a little bit. And it, took, and it took your, I think your sister to, and your, and your family to push you out here, out in LA. Yeah. Well, actually I got uh, to LA. I, I achieved what I thought was my goal, which was to work for in-house at, at a Sony or someplace like that. And I was just thoroughly miserable. Um, and actually I remember one of the early inspirations, even though I hadn't registered, it was talking to Chris Williams because I met him when I was a lawyer on the beach and he was riding his bike and I was riding my bike and he was talking about how hard and miserable it was what he was going through. And he seemed happier than I was (laughs) in my (laughs) successful so-called legal career. So uh, my mom and my sister got me on the phone and they're like, all right, you gotta, you gotta quit and be an actor. And I was furious because I didn't think I had anything going for me other than the fact that I was a lawyer. Uh, and I think I was 34 at the time. So I was like, if I give that up, same worry that Chris had, uh, but had the bravery to overcome it earlier. If I give that up, I'm nothing. Um, mm. And I kind of slammed, you didn't yell at my mom and my sister for any reason, but I slammed the phone down and just the sound of the phone hitting, I was like, that's it. I, I never thought about becoming an actor. Um, prior to that moment it was never viable because i was like that's just insane 
and I, I never questioned it after it. So I was just like, all right, I'm in. And uh, the easier thing about that than what um, Chris and Hervé probably went through was my goal was just to try. Mm. I was ashamed that I hadn't tried. So mm -hmm. I was like, I'll, I'll take all my money and, I, and I'll give it a shot because that's what I was afraid of. I didn't have to, I didn't think it was going to work out by any sense, but I said, as long as I do everything I could possibly think of doing, then we'll see where life leads. Cause otherwise you're back in a law firm, you know, yeah, those are bad days. That also <laughs> encompasses Christopher as well, encompasses that he's written and he's directed and he's done so many different things that Irving and I were in one of his shorts as well. But he's mm -hmm. not just done the acting thing, he's expanded his his writing and his directing repertoire as well. So Yeah, and that, that that's and I'm glad you mentioned that because you, you did write a short film where the fact that you guys were all in it and uh called her first black guy. So <laughs> I mean <laughs> It, it actually, and they did, they were, they were very good. Uh, and the film did, uh, actually did pretty well. But I, and I was talking about this before, what I wanted to do with that film was we all audition against each other with each other. And I said, I don't know where this career is going to be, but I want it recorded, the guys that I worked with. So I needed to come up with a venue that, brought everyone together uh and then uh and so that was the impetus for that for that film mm. that yeah that's great i was look i was trying to i was looking for it because i'd love to see um just the <laughs> just the title alone is like okay it's a fascinating uh, yeah. kind of story but um you know only a couple more because i don't know you guys are busy brothers one thing is what are you guys passionate about outside of acting a member of the Academy of Magical Arts, and I'm trying to get Irve's daughters to become magicians as well. For the past, um, yeah, about 11 years. And yeah, and I, I mean, I remember when you came up to the reunion and you were like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a magician now. And I'm like, okay. I'd like to debut, <laughs> debut something for you that I've been working on if you'd like to see. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Of course, got to do it. So I'm trying to see if I can still see my hand. So I've heard over and over and over again that all lives matter, right? I keep hearing that all lives matter, but they don't understand. That's racism. So no matter where you mix up across the United States, you're gonna have people in the South saying that all lives matter. You'll have people in the North saying all lives matter. And even people in the Midwest are saying that all lives matter, but they don't understand. That's racism. And racism is all over the, on the top, in the middle, and on the bottom. That's racism. So people keep saying that all lives matter, all lives matter, all lives matter all the time. You have to understand, all lives can't really matter because that's racism and not until black lives matter. Wow. <laughs> Magic with a conscience. Wow. Wow. That okay, I'm sold. You you're a magician now. Because that, I, I that that is fantastic. That is fantastic. And it was debuted right here on Black Men Speak. So there you go. There you go. There you go. 
And what about you, Irving? Because I know you have a, I know you have a foundation. Yes, uh, we have a foundation. Uh, it's Claremont, uh, Jay Claremont Foundation. Uh, we started uh, after my father was killed in a car accident. Um, being a, a doctor, he always wanted to go back to Haiti and um, and open up a clinic. And uh, unfortunately, after he died, uh, we you know you need a doctor on there twenty four seven. So we tried to fill the next biggest need, which were orphans in Haiti. So there were three hundred eighty thousand orphans um, even before the earthquake hit. And so we started the foundation and just over time, you know, we actually uh, have been running since 2003. Uh, my wife has a, a business called Succulents for Haiti, which we just changed to Planting Hope LA. Uh, so where we can help out more than just just the, uh, and I'm not gonna, it's not an orphanage, it's a homeless center for boys. Um, so we take these orphans off the streets and, uh, you know, we we're just keeping my father's legacy alive because, uh, he was fortunate enough to come to the States and continue to pursue his career as a doctor, whereas we know immigrants come from all over the world. Uh, they come in studying uh, various, uh, having various degrees uh, in various industries, and they don't end up following their career path. Uh, and in doing so, he always would uh, do pro bono work with uh, Haitian immigrants. Uh, so growing up, I always, you know, people would always come to the house and, you know, he would counsel them. And, uh, so our legacy of continuing to help the Haitian people is uh, something that, you know, all of this, my siblings are involved with. My mother was the captain of the ship, and now the wife has her business where we uh, give some of the proceeds to uh, to the center to, to help the school house um, and take care of these boys who otherwise wouldn't have the, the means to do so or parents don't have the means to do so. That's great. Yeah, make sure, uh, you know, after the show, put in you know, the information in the chat for people that are watching. Uh, I think that would be a fantastic uh, opportunity. Those are brothers as well, brothers and sisters, and we need to support that. Um, what about you, uh, Christopher? You know, and, and I think this is to what Chris said, um, the the day job is obviously acting, but there are voices that I've heard, mine and others, uh, that I still don't see in film, and that's where the writing and the, the directing comes from. Uh, her first black guy was edging into that, um, having black characters from uh, from perspectives that I'd come across that I don't see again, and also just addressing in some way the world we're in now. Um, I'm working on a short as we speak called "Hire a White Guy," and um, I there's a lot of diverse images out there, but really in our field, it's about just voices. And can you get that that opinion out there in an effective way uh, that moves people? And I, I think it's possible. So that's where, when I tend to walk around and go hiking up into the mountains, that's what's always clicking through my head. So what's mm -hmm. that different way of telling that story? Uh, not for socially conscious pur uh, purposes, but when you're a, a Black author, it, it's any new voice, any strong opinion, almost by definition is, uh, just by virtue that you say, I think this is a message that should be heard. So that's kind of, that, that's what makes me burn. That's fantastic. Cause yeah, we, we need those diverse stories. We need, we all, we're all from different backgrounds, different walks of life, and we really have to get our voice out there. So to kind of close out the show, um, lastly is what, 
as black men and just let what's what's on your mind now right now so much <laughs> so much to cover i mean i have twin girls five years old and you know i just uh especially now just uh the turmoil that i believe this country is in uh you know i just i'm hoping the best for this country you know and, uh you know we there's obviously so much good still out there but uh you know it's uh, it's, it's scary times you know and uh, it's my my purpose in life is you know to make sure that my girls are you know grow up and are raised my girls and my stepson um that you know they are able to enter a, a better world uh as young adults and and from there on you know so yeah there's a lot there's a lot right <laughs> Chris? Um, honestly, I mean, I grew up for the time in the States in, in a pretty much all white environment. And it just feels to me like uh, the white culture I knew is, is floundering, um, just fallen by the wayside for all the negativity and the difficulties that are occurring in, uh, in black American culture. Um, I just feel like I'm looking at a friend who's drowning and, and no idea that they are. And I think the black experience uh, and black people uh, can provide a solution. Uh, there's a, that trip through adversity that we've made may to a large degree be what uh, the country needs to get us to get us to right the ship. Um, so, uh, I, I've never really seen this before, but uh, it really does. And I was, honestly, that's the image I have. I was a lifeguard for many years. It looks like you're watching someone drown. And um, it, it may be up to us to stick a hand out, pull them out. Drowning, drowning, they, they're not sure how to swim or? Uh, actually, yeah, that, that's curious. It's a curious, a lot of people, and I was a beach lifeguard, a lot of people go into the water assuming they can swim. Um, and when they get in trouble, you just see this look in their eye. A lot of times that's all you're seeing is the last bit is this eye. And there's not a struggle. There's not a splash, certainly no screams. And you have to click in and go, oh, they're going down uh, and, and get off the chair. And that's what I see. It's not a big rage. It's a quiet bloop under the water. And um, uh, I don't know. It seems like we need to... Uh, I know it's strange in this data to say help out, help out, but I, that's what I see. Mm. I, I see a group of people that are really struggling to uh, achieve their potential. Mm. Well, I think if anyone can throw out that life preserver, it would be you, sir. Um, and Chris, what about you? Uh, well, first of all, I was just informed by Michael Thomas that he and Joe Pecoraro held the man over the ledge. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to digress and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think Joe, Joe probably held him over the ledge, and Mike told him, you know, you can't kill, you can't kill this man. Right. Mike just said, "Don't let him go. Don't let him go." <laughs> um, I, I think we're in a really uh, a tender moment. Everyone's on walking on eggshells. Everyone is not sure about the future, which is bringing out a lot of anxiety and anger and frustration, and people need that to go someplace. People need their energy going someplace and it's exacerbating a lot of negative feelings 
uh, in, in a lot of society when they think that African-Americans or uh, people are taking something away from them when they don't want anything, we don't want anything taken away. We just want to be treated as equals or having the same treatment that someone who um, has a, 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 a lighter skin color that, um, or given the same respect if they had a lighter skin color as opposed to someone who, who is of color. Um, so I, I think the more that we can educate people, even though I'm exhausted for the last four or five months, educating as many people as I can, uh, when it really should be their responsibility to look at themselves and say, oh, do, do I have white privilege? And what does white privilege really mean? And is it uh, fair of me just because of redlining through the, um, in the past where uh, people non of color were not allowed in suburb areas or to live or to have a house or to specifically held out of that. And then you see how those people, um, the, the Caucasians that were, they were made for those programs, got that house, had that equity and built up all of this wealth, got their kids to better schools. It's a trickle down effect where they said the average right now, uh, medium income for a black family is 17, 18,000. Yep. And yep. for a white is 107,000 for yeah. the median, you know, that's a huge disparity and there's reasons behind that and if people would just try to give them a take a second and check themselves maybe saying that they're not necessarily perfect and maybe there are flaws in the system and working it from the inside maybe we can have some sort of equity amongst everybody asians whites blacks and everybody as, as long as people start educating themselves and not asking me to tell them about what redlining is um <laughs> tell them exactly that black lives matter don't doesn't mean that white lives don't matter it just means that black lives matter just as well so there you go people, people still have a problem with that though yeah okay. I, I know. and it's what? about and black lives matter is also about the the treatment police brutality that's where it started of seeing how the disparity between how a person who a, a white kid who kills 14, 15 people in a in Aurora, Colorado, and then a, a kid, a black kid in, with the same police force, a 14, 15-year-old kid coming home from the store and being killed and tackled and this, and then the other kid being taken to Burger King after they know he killed 14, violently killed 14 people. Mm -hmm. So there's a disparity among those two, and that's one of the reasons why Black Lives Matter is here, just to even just let people know that that's the situation and the disparity between the two situations. Well, thank you for that. So, um, Chris, Christopher, Irve, um, I applaud you guys for coming on tonight and you guys are really representing us very well out there in Hollywood. And I applaud what you guys are doing. Keep doing what you're doing. So, so my, my show upload is still on, uh, Amazon Prime upload. Amazon check Prime. check it out. Yeah, plug plug. Everybody, go ahead, plug. Plug hey, show. Man. You know, ruthless. You, you have to pay. You have to pay for BET Plus. And, uh, and if you want to see us all in one, I'll put the link for uh, her first black guy. Oh yeah, put that in. Yeah, because I definitely want to check that out. Uh, um, you can see these guys at their finest. All right. Thank you. A truly wonderful show. 
it's great to see brothers that are out there that are passionate, they're following their dreams, and they're doing what they love to do. I just want to thank Chris, Christopher, and Hervé for being on the show today. And if you want to see more of them, you can catch Chris Williams on Amazon Prime's Upload, Hervé on Tyler Perry's new show Ruthless on BET+, and Christopher T. Wood in a short on YouTube called A Time to Kill. It's hilarious. Black Men Speak is written and hosted by me, Keith Dent, and edited by Grace Chung. Don't forget to SSC. And if you're new to the show, that means share, subscribe, or comment on the show by going to Libsyn.com and looking up Black Men Speak Podcasts. As you know, after every show, we like to end with a quote, and this one comes from Spike Lee. I believe in destiny, but I also believe that you can't just sit back and let destiny happen. A lot of times, an opportunity might fall into your lap, but you have to be ready for that opportunity. You can't sit there waiting on it. A lot of times, you're going to have to get out there and make it happen. This is Keith Dent from Black Men Speak Podcast. Peace.